You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking via Zoom with Tim Urbaniak, who is in Billings, Montana. And we're going to be talking about historic inscriptions on the Northern Plains. But before we get to that, Tim, um, Crystal, I just want to check in with you like we always do and find out how your week has been here at Extreme History. Well, it's been really good. It's been a busy week as usual. We've been uh, writing some grants. Uh, Grant writing season is usually in the winter, but there's a few right now during the spring, so we've been writing a few of those, which is always fun to think about the projects we really want to do and and put those into grant form. Fun to think about the projects. Not always fun to write the grants, but it must be done. It must be done. <laughs> and um, and so we've been doing some of that. We've been planning some programming for this summer, which is super exciting. That's exciting. Because, awesome. you know, we didn't have anything happening here at Extreme History Headquarters last summer. And so it's so fun to think about what we can start to do this summer. So, Feels like it's been ages mm-hmm. since we've been able to have walking tours, have people regularly visit the the Extreme History Headquarters, this historic house and yeah. all of that. That's exciting. It is. So we're thinking about some book readings. And so oh, we've awesome. been planning some of those. So nice. stay tuned. for The library is looking really good. I know, Just walked I know. by it on the way yeah. in. Yeah. yeah, the bookshop is coming along. Yeah. Yes, yes. um, And then kind of on a more personal note, my daughter just finished her first year at at MSU here in Bozeman. Is she home or still in the dorms? She just moved home today. Ooh, how's that going? Yeah, good. Well, I don't know. I haven't been home yet. (laughs) (laughs) My son moved home uh, in January, and the the house has not been quite the same since. Yeah, Yeah. probably will be the same. But but so glad to have her back at home and kind of have both kids under the same roof again. It's so fun. That's fun. And then also um, got my second COVID shot. And, yeah. yeah. And so, that, so did I. You so did you too. were down for a bit, huh? As I, I was. was. Yeah. yeah. But now we are um, yeah. all vaccinated. I think, Steve, you've got both your shots. Yeah. So we're just waiting for that two-week period past that, and mm-hmm. hopefully we all stay healthy. So far, so good. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of exciting. But what about you, Nancy? Yeah. Um, this week has been, also feels like spring is coming. So we're leading up to MSU having graduation this weekend. So um, I noticed today just a tremendous amount of people in town. I noticed in my store, just from as soon as we opened the doors, there was a floodgate of people. And fortunately, this week, we have been having an amazing amount of um, 
great new styles and designs and things come in. All our orders from Billabong and Roxy and Free People are coming. So the store is doing really well, just in time to kind of meet this wave of graduates oh, and their family visiting good. town. Some new stuff for yes, them to look at. Some photo see. shoots in town at the new hotel oh, at the Armory, which nice. is great. So that's all been very exciting. Um, also, Bozeman Life Magazine is doing a little bit of a feature on some of the boutiques and places in town. So it's been kind of nice to have all that. And and hopefully we will be uh, officially the sponsor for some of the downtown walking tours that yes. Extreme History is doing. Yeah, so yeah. Mocha Boutique will be doing that. So it's exciting when we can have those overlaps. Um, right. And then I've just been excited to see the podcast we did last week where you interviewed me um, up and out there. So uh, mm. Tim, you'll have that same feeling um, this week when you see your face and podcast <laughs> plastered all over social media. It's very exciting. A little, little nerve wracking, but very exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Tim, we're so glad to have you here today. Welcome. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Glad, glad to be anywhere at this point. Yeah, yeah, I wish you were actually here in the same room with us, but but Zoom is um, good enough. Uh, so before we start in with questions, um, I want to start off by telling our listeners just a little bit about you. We always do this, give a little bit of a bio to about whoever we're interviewing. So Dr. Tim Urbaniak has an extensive background leading academic and volunteer projects applying technology to the documentation of historical and archaeological resources. His past projects have included rock art and historic inscription surveys, three-dimensional reconstructions of historic sites, digital imaging applications, and surveying technologies, also desktop virtual reality, three-dimensional scanning, and applications of multimedia. I had the pleasure, actually, of having Tim come out with, with I think, your son-in-law and grandson, and you flew a drone mm-hmm. over Fort Ellis when we had done salvage excavations out there, and we got this wonderful 3D map out of that. So that was very exciting. Um, Tim Urbaniak holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of Montana, where he studied historic inscriptions and their role as a form of residual cultural communication. Dr. Urbaniak is now retired emeritus professor from teaching at MSU Billings and currently manages TRU or True Technologies, LLC, an archaeological and anthropological research and consulting service. His research work exploring and documenting historic inscriptions continues along with additional writing projects that include his recently completed manuscript, yay, entitled (laughs) Men of the Cave, the Excavation of Empty Gulch, otherwise known as Pictograph and Ghost Caves. So we're definitely going to be circling back around to that um, through this discussion. We're very excited. So welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, welcome, Tim. You know, and you've done some 3D scanning for some of the projects I've worked on as well at Fort Parker. You did some and some also some photogrammetry at Fort Parker. And then Second Crow Indian Agency, you did some work there. And then also in, no, Nevada City, you did some work in Nevada City. You 3D scanned some um, buildings at Nevada City. So... So we've worked together quite a bit over the past many, many years <laughs> on lots of yeah. different projects. 
Well, there are there are a lot of a lot of great projects always going on in Montana, and, and a lot of great folks like like you guys involved in them. It's so. nice. There's I feel like there's a lot of good collaboration in Montana. Yeah. Um, surprising amount of archaeologists, but still we're pretty few and far between in the yeah. state. So it's nice when when people can all get together and and use each other's expertise on projects. Right. Yeah. Right. So Tim, recently you did a presentation on historic inscriptions that I caught online. And on your first slide, on your first PowerPoint slide, you have a quote which read, quote, not all of our history is in museums. Some of it is written directly on the landscape of the American West, unquote. And I just loved that quote. And so I wanted to make mention of it today. And you specialize in historic inscriptions. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say that word historic inscriptions? Okay. Well, uh, in, in general, historic inscriptions are comprised of names and dates and imagery and other messages um, that are that are either inscribed or painted onto the uh, the landscape of of the. Uh, it, this is a worldwide phenomenon, but uh, uh, the ones I've focused mostly on are, are in the American West and on the Northern Plains, and uh, these. These historic inscriptions, well, you know, uh, like like rock art, you need to have rocks if you're going to leave a message there. And there, even though we do have historic inscriptions on granite and other materials, they're most commonly found on sandstone structures. Um, so the earliest are associated with the contact period, you know, when existing cultures encountered new people uh, on that landscape. And as a uh, communication form, it represents a tradition from what is largely referred to as rock art, uh, you know, bringing those forms of, of communication on the landscape uh, into the contemporary. Um, and, uh, when, when we talk about bringing that into the contemporary, we, we often engage part of the conversation of, you know, what constitutes historic as opposed to vandalism. Right. Um, and, and so I try to look at some of this uh, from from a larger, well, of course, an anthropological communication uh, view, you know, to leave the the emotion of vandalism out of it and look at the communication that's taking place and whether it's continuing the same or whether it is evolving across time. Okay, so you've brought up a couple of really interesting points there that we, we want to unpack with a couple of questions here. So I want to start by saying you, you know, you actually did your doctoral research on this topic. And I think I heard you give a a talk about it right after you had received your degree and and written your dissertation. And um, I don't know if you confined your research for your dissertation mostly to Montana, but that's sort of the way I remember it, even if that's not right, <laughs> you can correct me when you answer. Um, but I was, I'm, I'm interested in you talking about some of the inscriptions that you found, because I find it very fascinating to think about what indigenous people in the area chose to put on rock, um, how and what to market, versus then once you start getting, I mean, we think of, we had people before Lewis and Clark who were um, Euro-American out here moving mm-hmm. through the landscape, but then we have such a documented history of Lewis and Clark coming out and um, moving through the landscape. 
I'm interested in then as Euro Americans came through and decided to leave marks, carve marks, um, or and I don't know if they painted marks on rocks. How did they do it, and what did they do? So, what were you noticing as any continuity or differences culturally with what Euro Americans left? on the Northern Plains versus what we see with indigenous cultures that lived here? Well, you know, some of the continuity um, has to do with, uh, you know, symbolism. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for instance, uh, hands. In rock art, we have a lot of hands. They're incised, they're painted, there are a lot of things. Um, Euro... Uh, however you want to phrase it, Euro-Americans, uh, Europeans, you know, they did the same thing. Um, the, once the contact period had came, that is, we had, you know, horses and rifles begin to appear in the rock art. Um, you know, there's a lot of rock art about horses. And that's the same with, uh, you know, the, the 1800s, uh, especially up into the early 1900s and kind of the home, the end of the homesteading area. Uh, we, we uh, we see a lot of horses that were carved by the homesteaders. Uh, you know, the horse was important to the indigenous. The horse is important to the homesteaders. So homesteaders um, were carving horse imagery into rocks? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's fascinating. Um, I didn't know that. And, and dogs and birds and, mm-hmm. and, and cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we find just, you know, like the longhorn, the head of them mm-hmm. somewhere just inscribed some are very detailed and you know in a bas relief type mm-hmm. of thing um mm-hmm. there's there's one i'd like to try and track down if any of your listeners know where it is um there's rumor of a full-sized longhorn carved on a sandstone boulder up somewhere near fort peck wow a full and, size uh, that would be I've amazing heard, i've heard stories about it but i've not all right well yet. maybe we can reach some people yeah. with the podcast that's fascinating you know but but both is a generalized group well, really, even, you know, pre-contact into the contact area, into the into the historic and contemporary, um, something that really runs as a thread through that is that a lot of it is about uh, identity. Mm. You know, what is their identity? Uh, you know, were, were, they, were they a warrior? Were they a soldier? Are they, ident- you know, are they on the Oregon Trail, but they're still identifying as someone from Illinois? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we see a lot of that along places like, you know, like the uh, Oregon Trail. Very common for them to put their name, when they were there, and, and really where they're from. And, and they're con- again, they're continuing to identify as being from these other towns. Uh, the military inscriptions, and there's quite a, quite a cluster of them on the northern plains. And when I say northern plains, I, I'm kind of talking about this nebulous area it probably goes south about as far as the Oregon Trail and north until we start running out of sandstone um, type things. Uh, okay. You know, so it's, it's it's kind of a formless area that, uh, you know, that I've really focused on. But like, again, like the military, if, if they were out here and it's 1876 and they're, you know, in some campaign when they would carve their name and they did, uh, most commonly, they'd carve their name, their rank, the unit they're with. You know, so again, it, it's it's identity. That that is, you know, it, it, it's me. I'm here. This is who I am. So whether it appears I'm in that shape, yeah. or, or or someone with a large shield that has the particular, uh, you know, the the design of their clan or whatever, these are still 
identity embedded in this, you know, in this form of communication. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a lot about identity. Um, yeah, I mean, you get, I think I always think about names as being something that your Americans are going to leave behind, but you've, you've seen much more than that. Um, obviously, people are creating animals and things, oh, yeah. too, that were homesteading the area. But then just thinking of it more as um, your identity, not just as an individual necessarily, but your identity as part of a specific group that you're moving through with or that you belong to. There'd be a lot of continuity then with some of the, the things that we see in indigenous rock art in the region. Yes. And, and, and we see we, we see this this clustering again, whether it's whether it's the military in the late 1800s mm-hmm. or people from the Civilian Conservation Corps. You know, we find right. those inscriptions and that's how they're identifying uh, mm-hmm. the USGS. Uh, we, we, we see that. What and, do you uh, think? Some of this, you know, some of this I, I talk about a lot of this being inscribed and it certainly is the paint that was used. We do find uh, we do find pigment based historic you know, in inscriptions, as it were. Um, a lot of those are along the Oregon Trail where they were using axle grease. Oh. They would use axle grease as paint or, or paint that they were traveling with. Wow. Much more expedient. Much so quicker. use what's available right there. Yes. They knew it would work. And, and does that last as long or does it last longer? Is it a good they're, material well, to use? They're, they're still there. Yeah. Mm. Wow. They're, they're still there, you know, and some of those, you know, we use the same tools to to um, uh, to study and analyze them as well. Uh, like in rock art uh, with pigment material, the D-stretch uh, plug-in is very, very commonly used. And, and of course, that works for a fainted, painted, uh, you know, whether it's, again, their name and the date or, you know, when we transitioned into what they now call ghost signs, mm. where they would put, you know, signs along the roads right on the rock and, so, Tim, explain a little bit about what de-stretch is for folks out there who don't know what that means. Uh, de-stretch is, a, is an addition to, a, uh, to an open source software, uh, so anybody can have the imaging software. But uh, And, oh, goodness, the name of the gentleman that wrote it certainly needs to be acknowledged, but I can't recall it right now. Um, but this plug-in... In in rock art, for instance, we have painted figures that have become very, very faded. They're very tough to see. Or likewise, with a historic inscription that was painted, it's mostly gone. This lets you bring that image into the the software, and you can enhance different parts of the spectrum. So things like blacks and reds and yellows, they they really leap out at you. They're really emphasized. And and, and, uh, through this software, then you can... You can see things that you can't otherwise see in your photos okay. uh, by so enhancement. Is the gentleman's name John Harmon? That is, yes. Okay, John yep. Harmon. John Harmon. It's the one who wrote And this that. is something that is, is can be available to anybody. Um, that, yes. That can, I remember you talking about that. Now, Tim, we've skipped over um, a question I'd like to ask everybody and okay. I think you're somebody in particular um, because you got your PhD um, later in life, like me. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm interested in how you got interested in archaeology and anthropology. What were you doing in your life that eventually led you to go back and get a degree, a doctoral degree in archaeology? Wow. Uh, this is a, 
this is a career long story. <laughs> All right. Well, go ahead and tell it. And we'll edit it if we have well, to. Let me, let me make it. Let me make it. The Cliff Notes uh, version. Yeah, the Cliff Notes. I, I started version. out in industry, and industry brought me into computing. What industry? Uh, uh, actually, is structural steel, industrial okay. structural steel. Wow. Uh, refineries and power plants, um, doing the details for fabrication. You basically okay. dissect the building and, and, and do drawings of each individual piece so that the people in the shop can, can build it. Fantastic. Um, okay. And so I did that for about a decade. And then uh, in the 80s, there was an economic turndown. The company closed. And at the same time, a teaching position arose. Um, at our local uh, vocational school. Uh, it was not part of the university then. And I had an opportunity to teach. And my dad had been a career-long teacher. He oh. um, taught high school uh, biology. And I, th- I think he taught physics once in a while, too. Uh, uh, but he taught science classes in Forsyth and retired through there. And, of course, you know, you always kind of want to follow in your folks' footsteps, you know, a little bit. And, well, here was an opportunity. I didn't have a degree at the time, but I had an opportunity to go into teaching. So I took the lowest-paying job I could possibly find. And, and a typical teaching. of an archaeologist, I know. <laughs> and I, I, had always, I had always been interested in this because Dad went out and collected fossils and okay. did field research. And, you know, of course, as a lot of people do in Montana, go – Go up north of Forsyth on a ranch somewhere, walk around and look for arrowheads, yep. you know. And, yep. and so I was familiar with the outdoors. Well, as as our teaching is, or as our, our, our school transitioned into the university system and into the higher ed model, we were all encouraged to get further degrees and everything. And, and at that time, I became interested in, uh, well, I was brought into teaching because of my computer skills. Um, not a lot of people had it then. And I continued to build on that with every new technology that would come along. And I had been in the commercial world. I had actually had my own company as well doing doing structural steel. And so I, so I was still familiar with that. And I just, it, you know, I didn't want to draw another house. I didn't want <laughs> to work on another structural project. Mm-hmm. I had done that. So I started turning all of these technology tools towards historical and archaeological research. You know, the if I'm going to 3D model a building, I wanted to have it be, you know, the uh, the, the the Bear Mansion by Martinsdale, which a student group did one year. Oh, uh, we've got oh. a nice 3D model of, you know, the, the Moss Mansion downtown. Yeah, you know, through the years, we got uh, a LIDAR model of Bannock. Wow. You know, so we kept engaging these projects, whereas the new technologies would come. That's how I would bend it. Um, right, right. And, and so with my own continuing my own education I just kept plugging things in and I kept uh you know I kept picking up degrees and when we started offering associates I got an associates and got a bachelor's and I got a master's and my master's is in communication with an emphasis in public relations interesting and and I had no desire to ever work in public relations (laughs) although, although it really fit with archaeology and history because working with the forest service working with the projects you do I mean that that background hasn't hurt me at all. Oh, I right. bet. I bet right. that's been really important to yeah. have. Yeah. But, but even with a master's in public relations, you can't sign reports. Mm. You can't be the researcher. You're yep. not the primary. And so I wanted to go further. 
I had done some work with the U of M uh, with the anthropology department on, on projects and was asked if I wanted to apply for the doctoral program. And I did. And I'll be darned. They, they took me in. Fantastic. So wow. I just, I just kept going. I, once I started going to school, I guess I just couldn't stop. <laughs> did you know you wanted to do historic inscriptions or did you just sort of know you wanted to use some aspect of technology that you already knew and apply it to well I, I became involved with and again then with volunteers and students and, and, and all of that um, started doing sanctioned rock art research probably now about 25 27 years ago hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of pretty heavy hitters in rock art research. If you're going to compete for projects and compete for grants, you know, are you yeah. going to go up against the Lowendorfs and the, and, you know, right. and the, the Greers and the Kaisers? And, you know, mm -hmm. it can be very competitive. But one thing I noticed, not just because of the money, but most of these other inscriptions are being ignored. They, in a lot of cases, weren't, weren't being recorded. Uh, in some cases, they were being destroyed. Uh, there are cases where these uh, rock art conservatives in the name of conservation have have removed inscriptions from the 1800s from rock art sites, you know, mm -hmm. would clearly over, you know, the historic threshold and, and in some cases even into the 100-year threshold. Hmm. And and I saw that. And, and I uh, the people that I worked with out in the field, these these ranchers and community people, in a lot of cases, this was great great grandpa's inscription. All right. This was somebody who founded the town. This was. It became evident to me that these were very very important to people, and weren't being studied. And and I, I, I saw an opportunity there. Absolutely. Now, mm -hmm. now I will say that that my wife has summed up my historic inscription career by saying that it's. Easy to rise to the top of a field when you're the only one in it. You know? leave, leave it to Cindy. You're a pioneer. <laughs> That's the other way to look at it. You're a pioneer in the field. You opened up a whole new field. <laughs> but we do we do see more people doing historic inscription research. Mm -hmm. There are some some great yeah. folks studying historic inscriptions in association with and in addition to uh, the indigenous rock art in Australia. This is something that's being looked at and, and is at other places around the world. So I think, again, I think we're, we're starting to see this more as part of a larger system and a far, far older system of communication than, uh, than, than what it was originally thought to be. Hmm. And I love that you talk about it as a system of communication. I remember you talking about that in your lecture, and, and that kind of always leads me to that question of what compels people to do it. I mean, I think people have that same question about what compelled people to make those Paleolithic paintings, you know, in, in Europe, mm -hmm. deep inside caves. But what might compel people as they're coming out west to stop at a sandstone face that may or may not have had indigenous, you know, images on it already and decide to put something on it? What, do you, what are your thoughts about that since you've spent so much time studying this? I, I think that it, you know, with with the people that came west and did this, I, I, I think a, I think a small argument can be made for domination. You know, like like like, you know, there's a shield figure, and 
and a rancher from 1887 puts their name and a date over the top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it could be viewed that, uh, you know, that they're, they're, you know, we're dominant now. They're going to uh, they're going to put theirs over the top. And, and again, culturally, when you look at that, uh, that's a phenomenon that has happened through all cultures worldwide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rock art, whatever, Romans, everybody has done it. Sure. Um, but but I think a much bigger part of that is a communication with that landscape. You know, they're they're in a new landscape um, with with new actors. They want to tie to that. You know, they want to feel that they're part of it. And I, I, I think that's I think that's what happened years ago, and not many years ago, but there was a an incident at Pompey's Pillar, mm-hmm. where a traveling musician. There was a male and female traveling musicians, and well, they had they had gotten to the point where they uh, they were an item, you know, and, and I think maybe she was European or something, even you know, and and they ended up carving i think he carved their initials on pompey's pillar they were caught on camera they were tracked down they were fined uh, not enough in my view but you know why would you do that why would and, you go to a national monument and, and and do this well i believe that they were they were exhibiting and experiencing what some of these pioneers did they're out here the place is spectacular it's unbelievable the the, the feelings you get that combined with the fact that they have this new relationship, you know, mm. they're, they're bubbling, they're on top of the world. They, they want to do something to commemorate the time, commemorate the spot. Yeah, so even, though, of... even though it's illegal, you know, not, not right. sanctioned, I understand the compulsion. So the reason that people were so outraged, of course, is because there's another inscription on Pompey's Pillar um, William William Clark inscribed his name just a a, a few hundred years, <laughs> or a, you right. know before that. So so that's why people were and but it wasn't. What remind me was it close to the William Clark inscription or was it not? I think I think it was. Okay. I think it was. I mean that inscription's under glass and everything. Yeah. But I think it seems to me it was on a on a panel very near there. Okay. Um, and I, and, I and do. It's, you know. Yeah. The, 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 First of all, when Clark put his inscription there, he put it on a panel over some red pigment figures. Right, right. You know, so that were indigenous uh, that the indigenous people had put there. A few you know, and years. then you know, define irony mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be prosecuted for putting an inscription on a pillar known for thousands of people putting their inscription there. You know, it, it's it, you know again it's. It's it's almost laughable. I, I don't condone it, but I think I understand it. Yeah, and I love that. That's what I wanted you to talk about too. Is this idea of graffiti versus historic inscriptions versus rock art? You know, and and we see it happening kind of over and over again. Yeah, do we call are, it vandalism, yeah, graffiti, yeah. rock art, inscription? What do we? You know, there's that whole slope, slippery connected slope. Right. Right. Yeah. So maybe you could just kind of talk a little bit more about that as well. Well, and, and again, it is it is a slippery slope. Um, you know, when we say vandalism, we're talking about a deliberate act, you know, a, a, a deliberate act to deface or do harm. 
you know, whether what it says is to do harm or whether just by its placement does harm. Mm. And there have been some instances in social media lately that one has popped in, uh, popped up in, in, in Moab, right. uh, where a, a fairly well-known panel has been recently defaced. You know, well, that's that, that's part of the problem with the, this being a communication form. You know, if you know, is it saying something about us? Is it saying something about our culture right now? Oh, I think it is. Mm -hmm. I think for most definitely it is, you know, so uh, I may have drifted off track of where we were heading. No, that's, that's, no, I think that's, that's, I love how you say that, you know, that it really, it's a way of communication, but it's also tells, um, it will tell future people about what was happening now in 2021. And, you know, with that case in Moab, you know, it, it does show what people are thinking at this time and place. So that's interesting. But it is vandalism in that circumstance in Moab. I, I, I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, if it were somewhere and it survives on a rock somewhere around a corner for over 50 years, well, that will become historic. Right, mm. right. You know, that that is the lens when things pass through to become historic is 50 years. Um. Uh, you know, and then there are some other standards that come in at 100 years, which which also encompasses this. But, um, you know, and, and I love there, there's a, a, a court case from South Dakota where uh, somebody put their name and, and, and some, a, a date on a rock art panel and they knew who it was. It was a local. They went to court. Their argument was that, you know, well, in 50 years, or wherever it was in the court case in 47 years, it'll, it'll become historic. And the judge, when he delivered the guilty verdict said, Oh, you know, you missed it by 47 years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So, you know, and again, the, the intent there, there's so much, I've found so much emotion wrapped up in some of these. Yeah. Um, You know, the, I mean, think of the simple things. You know, somebody goes, whether it's on a tree or on a cliff, they put their initials plus the other initials and they put the heart symbol around it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, the heart symbol itself has an implied meaning that is particular pretty much to just our culture because it doesn't really look like the human heart. And if you didn't know it was associated with love, you wouldn't know that. So it's a learned symbology. And, you know, that's, that's another communication track you can go down. Um, but you, we don't find them just like that. We, we find them where, you know, two of the initials have been scrubbed from the rock and mm. two more put there. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Something happened. Um, while we were doing, uh, the recording all of the inscriptions and there are many in Medicine Rock State Park in the Eastern part of the state. Yeah. During one session when we were recording, you know, there's people come and go to the park. Well, there was a couple, and they had, like, Illinois plates. They pulled in, and they're over, and they're walking around one of the landforms and everything, and then you know, they're looking and pointing and looking and pointing. And so I drifted over and, you know, introduced myself and said, I saw you over here. What, you know, just what prompted you to stop here? Is it an interest? Is it a thing? Well, you know, we were both went to high school locally here. You know, um, she was in Ekalaka and he was in Baker or whatever, and they met 
and eventually got married and they moved away. Well, in high school, whatever, they they carved their initials on the rock. Were they looking for their initials? They, they don't come back to Montana very often, but when they do, oh. they always go there. They oh. always find their initials and they always carve them in a little deeper again. And those yeah. their grandchildren will be excited to see that. I mean, that's a, that's such an interesting story because you feel like um, it, it, it's a wonderful way to, as you were saying, sort of communicate, commemorate when people are having um, big emotions or big connections, especially to that landscape. And, and then it translates, um, transfers over generations. So it is, it is a difficult thing to sort of parse out these historic inscriptions, recent descriptions, graffiti. I thought that was what was, to me, fascinating when I saw your talk. And I thought, how have we not paid attention as anthropologists and archaeologists to this more than we had, you know? So good for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, Tim, I have a question for you. What's the oldest historic inscription you've ever found? Well the oldest we we have a series uh, of them mostly from from eastern montana that i refer to as problematics <laughs> um, you know we we don't have documentation on them we don't know who did them you know the the question of are they authentic well for instance i uh, we've recorded i believe 5 that are of 1776 now we know there were people wow. out here. We know there were European people out here. Yeah, you can you can look at a group of five, and first of all, you can assume that uh, if we've got five, there's more. Mm. But then you look at where they are, and and I mean, we don't have a dating method for when a rock was carved. You know, yet it's not old uh, enough. There's no lichen on it. There's not a good enough patina. You can't tell with well yeah these. and i mean there is lichen and stuff on some of them but right. 1776 yeah. is, of those five there's one maybe two of them that i look at and they're like ah they just look too new to me mm. they just don't look right they look too new hmm. the other three they're old and mm. they're where you think they would be they're mm-hmm. in the travel corridors. It's hidden up in the back of a shelter of a sandstone cave. So it hasn't been weathering. It hasn't been out, you know, every, everywhere. So, uh, I mean, we have them back there. I'd, I'd like to find something from, from, what was his name, Verendre? Yeah. I mean, probably pronouncing that wrong, you know, that uh, that came out in the 1700s, but. Yeah, but we know we know folks were here, and we've got a few inscriptions from them. But we, uh, you know, night eighteen oh three. We've got a, a two eighteen oh threes. There's an eighteen oh one. You wow. know, again, they they predate Clark. So again, anything. Do you know who they? Do you know who they are? are? Yeah, the... well, we don't. Okay, we, we don't know who they are yet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. I keep thinking there'd be a diary there somewhere where I someone's know. like, and then I, cr- I carved in the year, you know, <laughs> right. at this spot, and and Tim Urbaniak will find it in two hundred years, you know. Um, so Tim, we're going to do a quick station break. You are listening to the Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Dr. Tim Urbaniak about his research on historic inscriptions on the Northern Plains. 
Go ahead. So, Tim, just a... Um, one more question about historic inscriptions. Well, not really historic inscriptions, but ghost signs. You mentioned ghost signs earlier, and I love ghost signs on historic buildings in downtown areas. And maybe you could just speak a little bit about what ghost signs are and why you find them fascinating, because I know you do as well. Well, yeah, I, I do. I mean, they carry, you know, they, uh, they carry artistic style, with them and, and so they represent um, different periods um, but the ghost signs they would like to put advertising on buildings just paint directly on the walls um, often rock walls or sandstone block walls or brick and uh, the same tools that we use to enhance rock art can often be used to enhance those and bring them back uh, except one in downtown Billings that I've been messing with for a couple of years and I just can't get it um, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, along the, along the roadways, they would paint these signs just on the rock surfaces. Uh, and, and so a lot of those are faded as well. And, and the only way we can see them is, is if we use these enhancement tools. And those are um, often but, advertisements on the rock walls along, you know, highways and roadways. Is Yes. Yeah. They would. Oh, they would advertise clothing stores or a mm-hmm. nursery or, or, or something so that people would see them as they were driving. And, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have, didn't have billboards yet, so it was a complete, convenient place to put a message. You had a canvas, right, yeah, right. a natural canvas. I've always wanted to do a um, hit, um, ghost sign tour here in Bozeman oh. of all of our ghost signs on our historic buildings. And, and you know, some of them... I notice year by year, some of them fade away, but some of them become brighter for some reason too. You know, they change over time. So it's interesting how they, how um, sometimes I'll be walking down and I'll, I'll notice one that I've never seen before. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's the sun, maybe it's the sun on it or something or the shade. Mm. Lighting well, that, that's, that, yes, that's very true. I mean, just like rock art, there are rock art panels where, you know, we've been recording and then the sun changes and you look at it and you can't even really see it anymore. You know, it's so dependent on lighting. And I think with ghost signs, it can depend on uh, your viewing angle as relative to the angle of the weather, okay. you know, as to how it's, you know, like on bricks, it's, it's, it's eroding them from a particular direction. So, okay. um, so some angles can be better than others to look at them. That makes sense. So, Tim, before we get to your work on pictograph and ghost caves, um, where we have lots of pictographs to talk about there, mm-hmm. I wanted to quickly ask you about the the well-known panel, I want to say it's in the Billings Airport, maybe, that s- potentially seems to show a boat going down the Yellowstone that may have had um, Clark in it, or Lewis and... Um, Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that and and describe it for people who haven't seen it or people who aren't from Montana and um, and what you know about it? Yeah. That comes from 30 Um, Mile Mesa. Is that right? Originally? Yes. Yep. North northeast of Billings, Mm. Uh, northeast of Billings toward Roundup. Um, It's been referred to as the Explorer uh, panel. uh, Yeah. Petroglyph. Um, It is incised. Uh, it's not real deep. It's it's uh, uh, incised on the patina uh, of the sandstone surface, and it has a uh, it has a boat that, that appears to be a dugout canoe, 
there are two adult figures, if I'm remembering it correctly, there are two adult figures standing in it, and I believe there's a smaller figure holding a baby or is said to be yeah. holding a baby. Yeah. There are some horse figures beside it um, that are that are near it. Um, there's one tall, uh, appears to be an indigenous figure standing to the right of it. So it's, it's kind of a collection. You've got the, you've got the boat and these people standing in it. Um, and, and these horses beside it and a couple other people outside the boat. And, uh, of course, uh, the story around Billings is Clark. They weren't quite down the Yellowstone to Billings yet, but Clark's crew, they had their horses taken from them. And so they built dugouts and continued down the river. And, and so it's believed that that panel represents the, uh, the Clark leg of the expedition after they built the boat and they took their horses and they're heading down the river. Hmm. So why is that panel in the Billings Airport? Billings Airport. Is that what you uh, no, where, yeah, I said I wasn't sure where it was. Yeah. I think it's, oh, oh, yeah. uh, where, it's not, it? it hasn't been moved. I think there's just a... A representation oh, of it. There, oh, there could be a, gotcha. a picture okay. of it there. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so. And do, do you think that that, do you, I'm just curious, do you think that's what it, it is and it represents? And do you think there's there's a way to, to date it to know whether it comes from that time period? I don't think we can, uh, I, I, you know, we, we really can't date it. Exactly. Again, we just don't have that technological tool yet, I'll say. Uh, there have been some things done with rock art and dating rock art based on surface patina and, and things like that, but it's uh, not usually deployed on, on historic inscriptions yet. Uh, I, 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 from what I know about it, I think it can tell you more about older things than it can about newer things. Um, but you know, having been to it a couple times and looked at it and, and studied it, yeah, I think it is what what that is. I mm. mean, it was it was certainly uh, indigenous done. You know, the the style for that period and and the artwork, yeah, it it, it completely fits. You know, the people look the way the people should look. The horses look the way the horses should look. Mm. Um, I, I think it would have been you know, a major event to them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not only the taking of the horses, but to seeing these people traveling through, you know, something worthy of documenting. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, is it Joseph Kramer wrote an, an article about it that's in Archaeology in Montana, Montana, and I, am I wrong that Stu Connor may have written about it or spoke about it at one point too? He may have. Okay. I, I, I don't. I don't recall. I feel like we've had a fair amount of um, avocational archaeologists um, talk about it or write about it. But it, other than that, and it's it's not in a place that's necessarily easy for the public to see, which is perhaps why there's um, a representation of it in, in a public space. Yeah. So, so moving from that to um, your manuscript, um, <laughs> I am I'm so excited about the work you've done on pictograph and ghost caves and the, the WPA World um, Progress Administration um, projects there. 
And um, you, I've come to think of as a real expert on understanding the history of those excavations, the the place itself. I know you've worked with um, uh, Sarah Scott, who we had on uh, the podcast earlier. We talked to her about some of the radiocarbon date work she had done and and that she had worked with you in, in sorting out some of the complicated stratigraphy there, especially at Pictograph Cave. Um, so I've asked you to be on my doctoral committee, which you agreed to do, and we were able to share some resources, which was which was great fun because I've been working on things, and you've been writing a manuscript, as we referred to earlier, called Men of the Cave, which is such a great title, and we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, but I wanted to ask you more specifically about the pictographs in Pictograph Cave because we haven't talked about that in previous podcasts. There's over a hundred um, pictographs that are either red, white, or black um, in the in those pigments, and they're not necessarily easy to see if a visitor goes now to Pictograph Cave State Park. But they are important, and we do know some things about that. And part of that comes from from your work. Um, in looking at the original historic recordings, but then also using technology to reconstruct them. So I was wondering if you could describe for listeners the pictographs, uh, what they're like, and sort of maybe the range of things represented, as well as the range of, of dates over the time that they were made. Hmm. Okay. Well, at, at Pictograph Cave, uh, at, at one time, uh, the visible pictographs um, pretty much covered the arc of the back wall in the cave. Um, now, the older pictographs, uh, seems like a lot of them uh, use black as the, the major pigment, uh, a little bit of white pigment. Uh, as far as the age of them, I uh, and I, I don't have my direct source in front of me here, but I want to say that the, I believe Larry Lohendorf had the had some fragments from the fallen turtle right, figure, right, dated around 2000 BP. I think that's about before, right before present, somewhere around there. So we know we know they're at, at least that old. Hmm. Um, the older figures, the charcoal, some of them are are large shield figures um, where you see a, a large circle and probably a design on the shield. And then you see another circle above it. That's the head sticking out and perhaps a weapon sticking out and the, the legs and feet below. Um, these older figures are generally referred to as pre-contact because before the horses came, um, the shields were large, uh, you know, large enough to hide behind if you were, uh, hunting or, or whatever. And we see those and, shield figures in, in a lot of other places as well. Um, yes. Sort of in, on the Northern Plains, up into Canada, down into Wyoming and, and other places too. So it kind of ties Pictograph Cave into that larger regional. Um, yeah, so there's some of those as well. And then, you know, uh, things were super superimposed over the tops of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, uh, things from their lives, uh, you know, pictures of buffalo, uh, a wolf attacking a buffalo or bison, mm-hmm. uh, bison, however you want to phrase it, uh, you know, a deer, elk, mm-hmm. uh, you know, eventually uh, flintlock rifles and then horses. Uh, 
some of that material done in red ochre, which is his uh, ground up iron oxide that was used as pigment. So in general, you see the uh, darker black figures in the back, they're the older ones. And, and as they become newer, you see more of a use of the, the red pigment. Hmm. Um, there are, let's say around a hundred figures in the cave. Um, the exact number is, is, is maybe a discussion um, because the numbers that people mostly refer to as the, the numbering system used by Malloy mm. when he came in late in the project and finished up the documentation. And on those numbers, I, I think those numbers is like 124 or something like that. Right. that it, it up to. Well, if you really inspect those, like there'd be a shield with some figures inside of it. You know, it's recorded once as the whole thing. And then it's also recorded as the only the shield and then only the figures inside of it. Well, now it's not one number, it's three. Okay. Um, we see a couple yeah. different clusters. Like there's a cluster where there's like a deer or an antelope with like three spears or arrows going into it. Whoever drew that, you know, when they were when they were replicating the artwork, it's done twice. Okay. And then it's done a third time where it's in association with another one by it. So when we talk about the exact number of figures in there, the numbering system is a little bit nebulous because, you know, it, it's this one, but it's also part of that one. Right. But it's recorded again as this one. Hmm. And, and I also ran across that, you know, we call it pictograph cave, you know, being painted figures. Some of the figures, when I looked at the original recording over in uh, over in Missoula, where it, it's stored in the library, um, there are a couple of the figures that they were incised. Um, they uh, there were petroglyphs there as well that were carved into the cave. Not yeah. many, but there were a couple. It's certainly soft enough sandstone that Eagle Formation sandstone. Um, also, I think one of the things I had not realized until I started trying to write about it and working with you is that, as you noted, the way they had been drawn by whatever artist, I forget who it was that Malloy was working with, they were all kind of drawn as individual things. And so the representation of one image to another, the placement overall was not recorded. Mm -hmm. So some of your work was being able to kind of show what the panel would look like, even with all its overlaps, but how those things may have been placed in relationship to each other purposefully, that contextual information wasn't something then that was captured in Malloy's time. Is that right? Well, you know, that, that, that is something that was said about pictograph cave for many, many years um, that when they, when they recorded the individual figures, uh, some people say they were traced, they were not, they were drawn onto uh, brown butcher paper. So of course you can't trace through that. But when they were drawn and checked for accuracy, um, uh, it was individual figures. Right. And, and, and again, well, where were they? I don't know. It's faded. Some of them can't be seen anymore. So uh, I, I did a research project. Uh, I started with, with some students and then, uh, and then got, got bigger. And then, of course, students, doggone it, they graduate and take off. And so <laughs> you got uh, – which, which, is, which is great, but uh, uh, I, I just kept it going until I had placed as many figures uh, on, a, on a current photograph of the back wall of the cave 
uh, as I could. Having the right overlay, you know, what was superimposed, um, and having their placement correct. And this was done by examining as many old photographs as I could get my hands on. Mm. And if, if we're to say the number, if we were to say, well, there's 100 different figures, I was successful in getting probably 80 of them back on the wall, mm-hmm. yeah, which, which I thought was great. And, and, yeah. and some of the other ones were just, you know, it's a, it's a single swirl shape. Yeah. You know, well, you just can't see it anymore. Where was it? You don't, you don't know. You don't even have a place to look. You don't, well, then years after this project, uh, doing some work with, with the university of Montana and their curation center, we were, uh, scanning on a, on a large scanner uh, the original uh, strata drawings of the project, uh, the original sections that were drawn um, throughout the stations. And one of my students came to me that was, that was helping with this project with a big sheet, and he said, hey, isn't this something you've been looking for? Well, a large sheet of graph paper had some markings on it and station points and station marks. Well, of course, they've had surveying class. I, I taught some surveying at the time. You know, we this was a document in our language. This is in drafting right. language. We looked at it, and, and work study Gary looked at it and said, I think this is what you're looking for. Well, yeah, it was a surveyor's map to where every individual figure was on oh. the back wall. So they had plotted wow. each of the one that they wrote out individually or drawn individually. They actually had plotted where it was on a map relative to. That's fantastic. They, they did. Yeah, they did. And so we now have that map. That's a project I need to get back to. That's Malloy. Days, I tell you, he was I, meticulous. I can put them all on there now. Yeah, no, he was meticulous, and it's just it, that's what it takes is going back through these archives. It's fascinating. One of the things I found amusing, um, whether I should or not, when I was reading Oscar Lewis's notes, and he talks about, you know, some of the images that are are on the back wall, and he draws a couple. And some of them are kind of this double oval and a few sort of little hairy things off the edge of them. and, And he'll write, apparently, this is female genitalia. And I just thought for a guy like that to be able to, like, it just was not, like, I thought, I don't, I'm not sure who told him that or where that came from. I, and I, I think it's quite right. There's several representations like that. But I just thought that couldn't have been easy for him to take notes on that or necessarily to tell anybody on a tour. It just didn't seem like his, I mean, maybe that's just me reading into Oscar Lewis a little too much, Tim, but, but I just thought, you know, he's not the kind of guy that would ever probably draw female genitalia on something much less, you know, probably talk about it. Um, just, well, it's, it's, and I've thought of, you know, working on that book, you know, making it as factual as possible and, and, and having as many facts, you know, as, as defense, uh, defensible as possible. But I, I've also come to think of it in, 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 in like a movie sense, you know, if it was ever made into a movie, you know, Sam Elliott as Oscar Lewis. You know, <laughs> totally. Kind of, <laughs> totally. Thing. And, you know, so Suspenders. Imagine, yeah. imagine these guys standing against the back wall, you know, and you're like, well, I don't know. It could be a bug. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> could be, but maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, so I loved I loved some of those um, interpretations that wove their way into his notes. So clearly there was conversation around it yeah. and, and things like that. 
Um, but I wanted to ask you, too, about sort of the current state of things at Pictograph Cave is that for most folks, it's it's not easy to see them if they visit today. And I've heard that when there has been a rain and some water has seeped in um, sort of through the sandstone that that they can those images can become much more vibrant again, which which may have happened all the time in the past, too, that they were faded and then would get vibrant over time. Um, and so I know there's been some talk now and then about should these be reconstructed? There Should there be something that this, the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks or State Parks does to uh, enhance the ability for people to view them, um, just to reconstruct them or to salvage them? So what are your thoughts on that? Because that's, that's a tough one for me. I think yeah. the cave itself is amazing, um, but it's hard for people to understand the full spectacle of, of what it must have looked like even 100, 200 years ago. I, you know, and, and over many years, we, we've had these conversations. Uh, I've had conversations with different state parks people, uh, and it was brought up in advisory meetings years ago. Well, maybe we should have an artist just come paint over them again so people <laughs> oh, can see it. You know, oh, dear. <laughs> Every archaeologist cringes, you right. know, when you hear that. Um, you know, the, one of the things that that original poster really helped people do was locate where they should be looking. Because if you don't really know where things are, it, it, it's tough to see very subtle things. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's, there's a lot of stuff that is still there. Um, two ideas that I, I don't think ever got implemented, but I, I think would still be good ideas. One would be if you go to some historic sites, they'll have these little peephole tubes where, you know, it's, oh, and then the battle took place over on this ridge over there. If you get on the peephole tube and look, it'll, you know, show you where. It superimposes it in your view on the the landscape. Or just just points you right to the spot. Yes. If you look through the little tube, you're looking at the horse. Gotcha. Okay. It's right there. Can focus you in on what's still visible. Yeah, I, I think another really good idea, maybe even better than that, would be if, if you could get some sort of uh, of a projector system, mm, uh, yeah. maybe with uh, with a low idea. density laser that wouldn't actually hurt anything, but just you know project a thing, and you could have it. You could even have an audio thing there with it, where you start with the older figures in the back projecting them. Where they go? Oh, you know, that'd be amazing! Can you imagine doing and, that and you at could night? Tell the and story having a, and yeah, it'd be amazing. And, and uh, yeah, I think that'd be a cool deal. They, they, uh, they're probably getting a bunch of money here recently. They ought to maybe consider that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Maybe well, I'll send this to them and they can <laughs> listen. <laughs> exactly. Let's just put it out there yeah. and share it with everyone. We'll I love that it. idea, yeah. though. That would be a really I fun project really to neat. get people to collaborate on. Yeah, and then you could really well, and, see and, and, oh, through time, too, you know, that it's hard when you look at rock art sometimes because it's all just one dimension. Mm-hmm. But this could really show, you know, like you said, those darker images that are older and then the lighter and then the more recent um, that would make it easier to understand how a cave like Pictograph Cave or a rock art panel kind of changes over time. It's just not the static thing that we see today, but how it's very dynamic and, um, you know, the additions over time that we can see through dating methods and in different ways. Well, I think, you know, they've, they've certainly got some 
you know, one of the continuing challenges out at Pictograph Cave, um, you know, for, for the folks that manage it are, you know, the continuing rock falls, you know, the cliffs continue yeah. to degrade, um, you know, things continue to affect the rock art and, and, and it, uh, you know, it, it continues to be a challenge to keep the public safe and to try mm -hmm. and keep things from deteriorating. But the, the honest truth is there, there's not much you can do to prevent the deterioration of this rock art. Right. Right. Even in a cave, usually you get some better preservation, but not, uh, this is such a shallow cave and that sandstone is so friable there. Um, so Tim, I want to ask you about a couple of other things. So your manuscript, um, that you have finished, you have called men of the cave. Tell us about the title. Oh, you know, you know, I've I've uh, actually gotten grief from at least one other uh, female archaeologist. Oh, I'm not giving you grief. I love the title. Shall, Sorry, but go shall, ahead. <laughs> no, no, rightfully so. I mean, you know, certainly in our contemporary, you know, in our in our time, you know, being quite gender specific like that is is a is, is a calculated social risk, and, and uh, so an archaeologist that I I respect very highly, and I don't I don't want to mention her specifically as Halcyon, but I will. Uh, you know, they called me on that men of the cave, huh? Mm, mm, men, yeah, doing man stuff, you know, and and and, and yeah, I've given that serious consideration. Uh, and I and I and I think it's right, but I think I've made up for it. Yeah, uh, I think I've made up for it. And, and and by doing that and researching this story, I've been able to uncover a very uh, significant person in Montana archaeology that has largely gone unnoticed. I think in, in our in our history, and, and so I I think I can make up for the title. <laughs> yeah. So, so Tim, maybe um, tell us a little bit. Because I think I know who you're talking about when you say that you found this one person. Um, and you mentioned that I was posting about our new documentary project on Facebook about the called The Story of Us. And it's about um, we're going to focus in on some women who are um, featured in this documentary that are important women in Montana's history. And you mentioned on there a woman whose name is Catherine McCann. And Nancy, you know who this is, but I didn't know who this was. And so I did a little digging into Catherine McCann and found her very interesting. So is that who you're talking about? And then can, yes. you, can you tell us a little bit about her and explain her role in Montana history? Well, and, and, uh, uh, the the men of the cave title actually comes from. Uh, I'll drop back to that for just a okay, second. Okay. Yep. Uh, when they when they first began the excavation, the sanctioned excavation, uh, the men that stayed out there stayed in Ghost Cave, mm -hmm. um, and and that's where they lived for that first summer. And there was a huge tourism boom. This was uh, highly advertised as a, as something for tourists to see, and a lot of people were coming. Thousands came Thousands of uh, people. to, oh, to yeah. see this excavation. And so the newspapers would say things about going out, you know, come on out and see the cavemen, you oh, know, because okay. they were living in the cave. Because and, they and, were the workers that were excavating at Pictograph Cave lived lived out there. Yes. Okay. Okay, yep, gotcha. Yep. They had some and bunk then, beds in Ghost Cave. They had a 
cooking area, kitchen area set up. I mean, it was okay. pretty amazing. There's there's only one photo I've really ever seen, one or two photos. But mm-hmm. but you could imagine that would be just as much a curiosity as as the archaeology was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it it was, and so that's that that's kind of where I where I got the name from. Really, the men of the cave. Okay. Um, I thought I thought cavemen was too far. Yeah. Yes. That wouldn't have been good. You've got a lot more <laughs> lot more heat about that than <laughs> men of the cave. <laughs> but there's yeah. great stories about that and how how they said Oscar Lewis sort of took over camp life, but he wouldn't sleep in the cave per se. He would be outside under the stars on his bedroll with a pistol um, uh, rolled up in his bedroll and stuff to kind of make sure nothing would happen or nobody nefarious would come up and, I don't know, vandalism or try to steal. So a lot of great stories from then. But Catherine McCann was one of the the people who came out that first season, I think, from from Montana School of Mines, right? Yep. She, she, uh, well, she wasn't from the Montana School of Mines. Um, she had gotten her archaeology degree in classically uh, classical archaeology from Missoula oh. and was teaching school uh, in Weibo. She okay. had returned to her hometown, was teaching school there. And, and I, I have not been able to uncover one, but I wonder if there isn't a connection between her being from Weibo and, and Oscar and, oh. uh, uh, and some of the other crew having done work over by Glendive, right? Uh, in a couple of years previous, I wondered if there was if they knew each other, had met, if there was some because connection. they Oscar Lewis mentions in his notes going to Weibo uh, sometimes to look at some some sites people had alerted him to when he first meets Sayer yes. in thirty six. So that would be an interesting connection to try to track down, Tim. Yeah, yeah, because uh, by the documentation, she arrived pretty much right after the other crew and after uh, Oscar arrived. Huh. Uh, and she initially stayed out there too. Right. Um, camping on the valley floor, but then she moved into town with some uh, relations she had in town, uh, which I'm sure were much nicer arrangements. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> pretty rough. She had a camera you know, but- too, I think. And one of the things they mentioned took some photos, but mm-hmm. it sounded like she was, listened to and well-respected out there while she was on site. I, I, I think so. Uh, and, and she was, you know, there were other women involved with this project, you know, when they were doing the, mm. uh, the curation of the artifacts and cleaning and doing the reports and everything, but uh, never seen anything other than uh, Catherine uh, as the only woman that excavated uh, by all descriptions right beside the men. Hmm. And and one day uh, I was going through records. I have, I have, a, as you know, I have a lot of digital records regarding. Yes, yes, you do, and thank goodness. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I, I call and, it and, the Timur Baniak archive in Billings. <laughs> yes, and, and so uh, there's there's a, a very common photo of Pictograph Cave, where all of the uh, all of the guys are all huddled together. Oh, yes. They're doing a group photo. We've all seen that one. Yeah. And sitting on top of the, the large rock behind is what has always been described as some unknown young boy who must have been out at the excavation. Oh, my gosh. It is not a young boy. That is Catherine McCann sitting on that rock. If okay. You zoom how up do you, on it, how do you, you know that? you look at her hairstyle. Really? It, 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 it's her. Okay. I mean, it, it, first of all, uh, the hairdo. 
not a board. Her, you know, because yeah. there's a yearbook photo from her teaching school over in oh. Weibo that year. Wow. And you look at the hairdo of the person sitting on the rock, and it's it's the same thing. Okay, it I have to zoom in on that top, photo now. I have yeah. not done that. That's awesome, Tim. Yeah. And so I'm I'm highly confident that's her. That's her in the photo. Wow. It's it's questionable about whether or not it was her camera that took that photo. Okay. And 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 she had some correspondence with with Stuart Connor, okay. uh, who who documented uh, a, a huge archive about the comings and goings of Pictograph Cave over the years, uh, which was really the foundation of me being able to write that book. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know he communicated with her back and forth. And had some photos he had asked her about, and some she said were hers, and some were not hers, and and mm. and, and so on. So I'm not, uh, I, I don't know if that was her camera or not. It's one of the last hurdles I have to go through to actively putting this t- to a publisher. Um, okay. Is I have to, uh, and I've spoken with them. Uh, I need to make sure my photos are all clear with the Montana Historical Society. Right, right. So, so many of these groups and agencies have yeah. duplicate copies and even duplicate negatives. That's of these photos the that... terrifying thing, Tim. I know there's so many because then some versions of those photos ended up in Kramer's ledger at Museum of the Rockies, and those have sure. original negatives behind them. So there are there are many duplicates. Um, but do you did you track down what Catherine McCann did after? pictograph cave and teaching in Weibo because I think she ended up in the east didn't she 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 did uh when she left um the excavation at pictograph cave and went to school in the east um let's see she she was one of the few women uh, because there were a lot of WPA archaeology projects going on in the United States at the end of the depression but um, she worked with some other women archaeologists and were some of the few female archaeologists to lead projects in the WPA era. Oh, wow. And she ended up over in Georgia uh, working on, I think it's called the Irene Mounds over okay. in Georgia. Right. And, and actually, the women archaeologists there, their crew consisted of um black women that were either widowed or single um but that was the workers uh, on the irene mounds projects um so uh, again a very early female-based archaeology project in our in our nation's history and i think she worked there through uh, 38 mm-hmm. something like that and eventually ended up staying back east. Uh, she eventually got her PhD um, there, and and, and uh, she went on to become the curator of archaeology at the State Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah. Okay. And was highly uh, worked on many many other projects in the east. Uh, I've actually managed to assemble a bibliography of everything she published. And, oh, nice, nice. And, That's great. And, and just recently ran across that she uh, is highlighted. I haven't even had a chance to read the article. There's a book that was written years ago about early American female archaeologists, and there's a section on her. Yes, I came across this too, Tim. When you had had mentioned her, I think she's mentioned by Vanneman in one of his 
recordings. Um, yes. And so that's how when we had talked about that and you shared that. So I, I did a little digging around about her, too, and it found she ended up back east and was glad to see she had had a career in archaeology. And that was one of the things I had, I had come across, too. Um, do you know if she had any kids? Does she have any descendants we could get in touch with? Or No, never married, never had any children. I'm so fascinated to think of what, what drew her into that field, you know, when she went to University of Montana, and and then she pursued it. That was not an, an easy time, especially coming from a rural part of Montana, to develop a career in archaeology. It's pretty remarkable. What? Tim, what's the name of that book where she's featured? I I, I don't recall. Don't recall. Okay. It's in his recall. manuscript, though. But I He'll do get know it that you. it's coming to me via Amazon Prime. Okay. <laughs> well, let me know, and I'll put it on our. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, you know, oh, okay. eventually when it when it comes to you via Amazon Prime. <laughs> let yeah, me know. I've got, I've got it in my notes downstairs. And, okay. And like yeah. I said, I, I I dug and dug, tried to get find it online or get an excerpt, and I couldn't. So I. It wasn't that much. I got one. Amazon Prime is a wonderful thing. Oh, it is. It's <laughs> it's dangerous, though. Like I feel like I found <laughs> an electronic copy of that book. I somehow exo- um, I somehow got to it through MSU, I think, a digital copy. And so I'd only gotten able to peek at it. But, yeah, it's so nice when you have the actual book yourself. Um, so, Tim, we're, we're starting to run out of time here and wind down. But I, I think we want to... Um, ask you about your manuscript. You said you're working on these final few permissions. When when do you think you may be able to publish it? And um, do you have a specific publisher? Or are you still working through that too? I'm, I'm still working through that. I don't have a specific publisher yet. Um, the, 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 my conversation with, with Helena will probably go a month or so, and then I'll be actively looking for a publisher. Okay, great. great. So I'm, 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 I'm hoping soon. I'm yeah. hoping so. All right. We're excited. Well, we can't wait yeah. for it. <laughs> It'll be a great contribution yeah. to Montana archaeology. It'll be yeah. wonderful. Thanks. Yeah. I hope yeah. so. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tim. It's time for us to wrap it up, but it was so much fun to have you on the program today. We're so excited to be able to talk with you about your research and about your upcoming book and hopefully we'll have you back on once your book is published and we can talk to you again more specifically about your book but thanks so much for joining us today and we hope you can join us again to find out more about the the dirt dirt on the past so a big thank you to our editor, Steve Durbin, and our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're a new podcast, and we're trying to grow our listener base, so please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>